Well, we do finish a sermon series on family this morning, and if you know me well, then you probably know this. If you don't know me well, then you don't, and that's if you can think of a type of family problem, something that causes problems, something that is a problem, something that hurts families, something that when we think about families, it's one of the negative things that we think about. If you can think of any of those, uh, then in some way, I have probably at least dealt with it in my family. Small degree, maybe, large degree, maybe, but I've probably dealt with it. And as I stand here in front of you today, uh, while I look at certain things that take place in my family, that have taken place in my family, the hurts, and I think, yeah, I wish those things wouldn't have happened I can tell you that as I stand here today, I I don't see all those things as personal tragedies. Instead, a lot of them I I see as things that have been ultimately good for me. And and I think that the reason that I have been able to come to that conclusion is because of uh, partly what I've learned in this story that we'll look at this morning and uh, partly what I've just learned that connects to the story from my life and how my life has gone and how God has worked in my life and all those things. And uh, a lot of times what happens is we look at family problems and they become really personal tragedies that we never get over. And a lot of people that I know think this statement right here, if you could connect with this statement, then this sermon is for you. If I was born into a different family, I would have fill in the blank, or I would be fill in the blank, or I would stop, or I never would have started fill in the blank after that. I think what a lot of us do is we see family problems, bad things, things that should not take place, things that, as we've talked about in this series, come from sin, come from people's wrong, morally repulsive decisions, and we don't stop by saying, well, that was a problem. We let them affect us negatively, and I'm not just talking about like they did affect us negatively. I'm I'm saying that for a lot of people that I know, that I engage with consistently, their lives are still in the present. Even if you're sitting here right now, it's presently being hurt by the things that your family has done wrong in the past. It might just be an emotional problem that is caused in you. You just can't get over what your dad or your mom did to you or what your brother and sister, how, how they rejected you or how they turned their back on you. Or it might be just something, not just that's emotional, but something that actually plays out in your everyday life. And you make decisions if you're being honest and introspective, you make decisions in life in part because they did that thing to you or because your family was messed up or because your parents got divorced when you were three years old. And, and so that's the reason that you go from relationship to relationship or that you drink a little too much or whatever because, because they did that thing then and, and it's still negatively affecting you now. Now, here's great news. You came this morning And I think that we are going to completely, hopefully, flip it on its head. This idea that what our families are and what they did to us and uh, how they've hurt us negatively impacts us. I think that instead we're going to see that maybe, maybe, maybe if we will do and think the right way, then maybe, maybe, maybe those things might actually turn out to be a positive in our lives. Not for our families necessarily, but in our own lives. 
there's this story we've been following. If you haven't been here, this is your first time here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the other six sermons. I think they're really good, you know. Uh, and you can do that at creeksidebiblechurch.org slash family to get the website correct this time. Uh, creeksidebiblechurch.org slash family. And you can listen to them. We've been following one family. And this family line in the story of Genesis and the family is incredibly dysfunctional, yet God has made key promises to them. And the very thing that threatens these promises the most as you read the story is the dysfunction of the family. And maybe you understand that, right? Maybe you, you feel that like, well, I've heard the good things that God wants to do in my life. I've heard stories about how people have been blessed by God. I've, I've, I've heard that God likes me and that he loves me, but I have this family. And just the very nature of my family suggests maybe that God doesn't love me. Maybe that God doesn't have my best interest in mind. Maybe that these promises that, that I think at some time in my life I was able to believe, they're in the Bible. But I think that maybe my family suggests that God won't come through on those promises and they'll never be fulfilled in my life. And that's exactly what the book of Genesis is kind of about. Here's a promise Family tries to mess it up, or they're not trying to mess up the promise, but they mess everything up. Will God still come through on those promises? One author said, God is determined to fulfill the covenant blessings despite the character flaws of his chosen family. And I think as we look at this story today, that you're gonna see in the life of this young man named Joseph that that statement is true and that it also is true in your life, that God, despite your family, wants to fulfill promises uh, that he has made about you and to you and for you in his word and maybe even personally. And the story begins in Genesis 37, verses one and two. And I'm kind of going to go back and forth. I was wrestling with this all the way up until, uh, until I was back there, not come out on stage yet. But I'm gonna go back and forth between reading these verses, I think, and then just telling the story this morning. Uh, and so hopefully that'll be okay with you. But I wanna read these first two verses because if you've been around and you've heard the other sermons, then it makes this connection that a lot of us, don't make. And uh, I'll explain that in a second. In verses one and two of Genesis 37, it says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Now we've spent the last three weeks talking about this Jacob character. We talked about how he uh, tricked or deceived his brother out of his blessing last week. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how he bought his brother's birthright, the, the inheritance that his brother rightfully uh, should have obtained. And, and before that, we kind of were in the future, but we talked about his relationship with his father-in-law. And, and this character, Jacob, is really, it's weird. Uh, man, at our Connect group, we've been talking about this a lot. He's not very likable. He, he just is kind of an annoying character that keeps getting his way despite not being likable. And Joseph who we're gonna talk about here this morning, is his son. 
And, and what I've noticed as I've gone through this series is that while, while you may have grown up in the church and you've heard all these stories, a lot of times you're not actually making the connection. The family line gets disconnected. And so if you're even like me, as I've looked through this, I knew this family line, but I'm like, wait a minute. This is like, this is Jacob's son. Like we, we know how he got here. We know his family background. And, and so in this series, we've seen these stories and they're all like really closely connected. I mean, like people from one story are still going to be around because it's their great grandkids. I mean, how many of you know your great grandchildren? Some of you, right? Do you know your great grandchildren like personally? And, and like the generations are moving on and their families are still around and it's a really messed up family. And we've seen these things and I just want to kind of uh, just give you them again. We've seen that rebellion is what ruined family. God originally meant for family to be a blessing that provided companionship in a way we can't find it anywhere else. And we saw that he provided family so that we could have the help that we need in life and rebellion, specifically the rebellion of Adam and Eve, ruined that. We saw that danger is mainly anger. We saw that when we are angry, it becomes dangerous and it ruins families. It's not just the things we do out of anger that cause problems. It's actually when we are angry, we have moved ourselves into a dangerous category. We saw that dishonor of parents brings dishonor to God. We saw that lying, selfishness, competition, jealousy, prevention of God's will, unnecessary divisions, and other sins are the very stones that separate our homes. They stand between different members of a family and they create a divide that sometimes is inconquerable and then we saw that me over we leads to a weakened family that when we place ourselves above our families then it's our families are going to be hurt and then last week we we saw that deception is deceptively destructive and all of these things we learned except for the very first one the last five of those things we learned in like a three or four generation period of time. And the story marches on with this kid named Joseph. Joseph was a young man of 17. He was attending or tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So Jacob had two wives. He worked 14 years to get those two wives and had a bad relationship with his dad-in-law for 20 years in order to kind of have those two wives. And uh, from one of those wives, he had a, a bunch of children and that was the wife he didn't really like though. And then from the other wife, he had two children, Joseph being the oldest. And so Joseph becomes his favorite kid because it's the oldest from the wife that he likes. This is all messed up, right? I mean, this is a messed up family. Even saying that out loud, it's like, <laughs> they're in the Bible? Like, what is going on here? This is a messed up family. But this is the kid that he likes. And again, that's a problem that we see in the book of Genesis. And, and we'll, we'll get to that in just one second. In verses three and four, it says, now notice this. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made him an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Israel is Jacob. That's a, a story for a different day, but that's synonymous right there. And so Jacob loves his son Joseph more because it comes to him from his favorite wife and because it's born, he's born to him in his, his older age. And I want to say again, this is so, I just think it's so important. We have a bunch of young parents and, uh, and 
I'm a young parent, and, and so I just want to get this clear. In these generations, we see this theme where one child is the favorite over the other children. It doesn't mean love in like the way that we usually mean Christian love. It means something more to the idea of they were more affectionate towards them, that they liked them better, that they cared about them. And a couple of weeks ago, I said, hey, don't let personality affect how you treat your children. Like you might like one of your children better, but don't change how you treat your two children because of that. One you might connect with because they like the same things that you like, but that doesn't mean that you can give one nicer gifts or be a little bit nicer or a little bit more forgiving when they get in trouble. But here we see a different reason that people play favorites with their children, and that's circumstances. And I think it's really important that we get in our heads that we can also not play favorites towards our children because of circumstances. Like you may have one kid who was the miracle baby to you and you never thought you would have them and then they came and then the other kid just kind of came, you know? And it's like, well, we knew we could have children at that point. But you can't play favorites in that. Or you might have one kid, this is more and more normal, from one spouse and one kid from another spouse. And you're like, well, your dad's decent and your dad I hated and I met him in a bar one night and and so I'm gonna treat you poorly. We kind of smirk a little, but that's like a like a normal kind of story now, right? And I think that there's a tendency to play a favorite in that. And, and what this says is, is that while you can't let personality dictate whether or not you're going to play favorites, you also can't let circumstance allow you to play favorites when it comes to your children. Now, Joseph's dad... And I'm going to tell the whole story of Joseph with these shirts up here, if you're wondering why they were on stage. Joseph's dad gives him an ornate robe. I just did t-shirts. Uh, if you, I, we don't have a big enough budget at the church for me to actually buy the clothing. Uh, and so we, we could not afford an ornate robe, I can tell you that. But, uh, but we, we, we can afford t-shirts. And, and so Joseph's dad gives him this ornate robe. He gives him this... Uh, robe that traditionally is seen as a multicolored robe or a technicolor robe if you are watching a play. And actually, and this was this is heartbreaking to me, uh, most scholars now agree that it, it had the, the word that translates multicolor in certain translations had nothing to do with color at all. It means full sleeved or full length crushed you know like that is not what I was taught in kindergarten you know when I was in Sunday school uh, but anyway uh, and it's it's about favoritism and even and this is this factors in to why the brothers hated him it's probably also about status like he's the younger brother and he's also been made a manager in their family's estate And, and so you can see why the brothers hate him so much that they can't even talk to him in a way that is good. It's pretty much what it says. And the story continues. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to the dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? 
His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So Joseph has these dreams, and and Joseph, by the way, maybe would have been better off not sharing the dreams, and you'll see that in a second. And it's really interesting in this story, in fact. um, This story, when it was taught to me in Sunday school, and actually when my uncle was leading a youth group, he went through this story. And the way that it's usually presented is, look, here is a character to be followed and modeled. But this story is really vague in its relationship to how it uh, describes Joseph And it's interesting because scholars will actually argue about whether or not Joseph is is seen as a good character in his early days of this story or as a bad character. And you know what that suggests to me? The Bible doesn't care about Joseph's character. The Bible cares about one thing in this story, and it's that God's promises will be fulfilled. And here Joseph sees a picture of what God's going to do in his life and he tells his brothers and they are jealous which means a passion for what isn't yours and the story continues and this is where I'm just going to tell the story instead of reading the story but Joseph's dad says to Joseph hey your brothers are off and they're like three or four days away from where they actually lived your brothers are off tending to the sheep and I want you to go and check on them I want you to make sure that they are okay. And so Joseph goes and he can't find his brothers and he encounters this man that's super mysterious in the story. He encounters this guy just in the city where he had looked for his brothers and and the guy says to him, hey, I saw your brothers in in Dothan and, and so go there. But it's a weird part of the story because there's no explanation about who this person is or why Joseph is talking to him. And it reminds us of actually a a situation that took place in Joseph's dad's life, in Jacob's life. And Jacob wrestled, that's what he's almost most famous for, he wrestled with this man that was from God. It was an angelic type being, being or a Messiah type figure. And so he wrestles with this guy. And here it seems that this man is, is very similar shows up on the scene, directs Joseph's path, points him in the right direction. And I think it's there to say, hey, I really do. I think it's there to say, hey, this story is about God's work and God's movement and about how God will use even, even, even your dysfunctional family to accomplish sometimes great things. Uh, The story continues in 17 through 20. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we will see what comes of him. Now, Reuben at this point uh, decides, hey, that's a really bad idea. Let's not kill our brother. Um, instead, let's throw him in the cistern. And, and they, he says, I'll create this plan and I'll, I'll go back to my dad. I'll get Joseph out and I'll save his life. 
Uh, but it doesn't work out the way that Reuben wants it to work out. And by the way, side note, just a little side note, Reuben had really messed up with his dad uh, just a couple of chapters earlier. And so we see maybe that he's trying to win his dad's favor back. And I said a couple weeks ago, when you play favorites, you're going to have one kid who's trying to keep your favor, and you're going to have another kid who's trying to fight for your favor. And that's exactly what we see in the story of Reuben. Uh, but Reuben does not win out in this because when he goes back to the cistern, uh, Joseph is not going to be there. But originally, they throw him in. And in verses 25 through 32, we see what happens. As they sat down to eat their meal. Now notice, they throw their brother in a cistern. I want you to just to pay attention to that. That's, and he's down there. There's no water. There's no food. I, I, apparently, their, their plan is to leave him there to die. Just, he's going to die there. Uh, and these cisterns were, were these things that the holes that they dug in order to collect water so that when rain came, it would hold water and then they'd have water later. And they leave him there to die. And then it's so fascinating. While he's in a well, basically, waiting to die now, they sit down to eat their meal. Doesn't make them look very good, does it? And as they looked up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed so that when the Midianites, or so when the Midianites merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Stop there. Now, this is what I have just so much trouble fathoming right here. When we read Ishmaelites, we picture some nation far away. You, you think of the Israelites, which is this line, and the Ishmaelites that are this other group of people. But if you were to follow the family line, it becomes really fascinating because there's a guy named Abraham. Abraham has a couple of kids. He has more than a couple of kids, but two that are famous in our story. And then this guy named Abraham's kids, one of them has a couple of kids. And then those kids, one of them has Joseph. You with me? So this makes Abraham like the great grandpa in the situation. Now the two kids that Abraham originally had were Isaac and Ishmael. The first time we know the name Ishmael is Abraham, the great-grandfather of Joseph's other son. So when we read Ishmaelites, what we should read is Joseph's third or fourth cousins. This is, you've heard me talk about Jared if you've been around. Jared's my best friend. He grew up just a couple of houses down from me. We're great friends. It's not much different than Jared buying me to sell me into slavery. We think some nation bought him and took him to Egypt. This is a messed up family. I mean, this is a bad, like, I, I'm just guessing that none of your family have ever sold you into slavery, nor have any of your cousins bought you uh, for that slavery purpose, right? It's a really messed up family. And, and here's the plan. This is the plan. They strip his ornate robe. They sell him into slavery. And then they go back to their dad after having dipped his ornate robe in blood, and they say, your family, your son has been killed. Now, this is what a lot of you feel when it comes to your family, isn't it? I mean, I know it's a picture of a, a garment, but don't you feel like you could have been great if your family wouldn't have torn you up 
so badly. And Joseph, I mean, his shirt gets torn up, but can't you imagine that, that he, as he is being taken away from his family, what he thinks is forever, sold into slavery by his own brothers, never will he see his dad again. Don't you think that he thinks in some ways, I have been wronged, so wronged that I am now torn apart. Can you not imagine that, that Joseph would have such bitterness and such anger and such hurt and such just torture of soul knowing that his family had destroyed him destroyed him and I think that that all of us can in some ways align with that right like you can look back on the things that you have experienced in your family life and you can go they ruined me they cut me to the heart they left me beat to shreds and I don't think I can ever get over it think I can ever get over it. This crazy thing happens. Joseph's dad believes the story. He's crushed by the death of his favorite child. In fact, uh, he basically says, I'm never, ever going to get over this. It even says that he refused to be comforted by his children, which was abnormal in uh, that culture at that time. He just thinks this pain, this suffering is never going to go away. And the reality is it's not going to go away for years and years and years. Um, but Joseph goes, I'm sure torn up by what his family has done for him. And yet, yet, we will see at the end of this story something incredible about how Joseph thinks and what Joseph feels and how he interprets this experience. So Joseph is sold into slavery. He's purchased by a guy named Potiphar, and he becomes a slave. This is the slave close. I don't exactly know how to illustrate that, but Joseph is sold into slavery, and he becomes the slave of a man named Potiphar. And Joseph is an incredible slave. Uh, he, he is so good for Potiphar. He is so on top of things and so valuable to Potiphar that over time, Potiphar stops dealing with his own household affairs and just gives full charge to Joseph. Just says, you're in charge of all this. And the Bible tells us that because Joseph was in charge of all the things in Potiphar's house, that Potiphar's house was blessed, that things were good, that, that he was growing in wealth, it seems, and that his house was just blossoming. Joseph is living in the state and probably thinking, I have overcome, I have I have." conquered despite the situation that my family left me and I am I am excelling as a slave despite the hurt and the brokenness and the pain that I still feel because of my family I'm still succeeding and then something crazy happens Potiphar's wife comes on to him and Joseph turns her down and Potiphar's wife comes on to him again and Joseph turns him down and Potiphar's wife comes on to him again and Joseph turns her down and one night he's in the room with her and he goes to run away from her and she rips off his slave clothes and he flees naked and there's Potiphar's wife now having proof a lie, but proof that Joseph had come into a room and tried to rape her. And so she tells Potiphar, hey, 
your slave, this guy that you put in charge of everything. He tried to rape me. I just think about Joseph in that moment. I'm sure he was mad at Potiphar's wife. Don't, don't you think that part of him immediately thought about his brothers? They've made me a slave. They've made me a slave. I, I'm now at the whims of what this lady makes up about me. I, I'm now at the, uh, at the mercy of a man who had no control over me before, but because of my brothers now has control over me. I mean, I was doing well here, but I'm still a slave. Isn't that sometimes how you feel about your family? You say, well, I got over the pain and the hurt. I'm okay. I don't ache as much as I used to when I think about those things, but I'm still a slave. I'm still a slave to those things. I can't overcome them. Uh, some of you may have sins that you repeat. You do things simply because your parents did them and you think, well, I'm a slave to this. I can't overcome this because it's always been done this way in my family and it will always be done this way and I'm gonna do what they do. Or maybe you just think, man, my parents made such bad money decisions. I think this is a, a common one. They made such bad money decisions that I'm still just gonna have to make bad money decisions the rest of my life. I will never overcome this. I'll never conquer this because they left me in this situation. Or maybe you just think, this is what they taught me and I, I've never learned another way. And if I would have had a better role model and my, my mom or my dad would have been more awesome, then I could have had a role model to follow after, but I'm a slave to their poor decisions. I'm sure Joseph felt like that. But now his slave clothes are taken off. And Joseph is thrown into prison because he allegedly tried to rape Potiphar's wife. Can you imagine sitting in that prison? Boy, oh boy, prisons have become a lot better. I don't recommend going there still, but I mean, what we think of when we think of prison is nothing like Joseph would have experienced. He would have been locked in some dungeon thing, uh, probably never having it cleaned, probably poop everywhere, vomit from the last guy, blood from when people hurt themselves and the fights that took place. I mean, this is a bad, dark place. And I can still imagine that when Joseph heard the door slam behind him in that prison cell, uh, that one of his first thoughts was, my brothers put me here. Some of you, maybe today, have come to this place feeling like a prisoner of your family's decisions. And maybe you don't hurt anymore. Maybe you don't even feel like a slave anymore. But there's a darkness inside of you that you cannot overcome. And you walk around with the prison clothes on. And you don't feel crushed. And you feel like maybe you can even overcome it. But there's darkness. You hurt. You're numb. You just know that something about your life isn't right. And you point back and you say... It's their fault. It's their fault. And I'm sure Joseph felt that while he was rotting away in prison. But Joseph becomes the best prisoner ever. He becomes such a great prisoner. This is a crazy part of the story to me. That the prison guard 
puts the prisoners under Joseph's care. Says, you got them. You take care of them. Make sure none of them escape. I don't know what the prison guard is doing with his free time. I, I read in a book. I don't know. Like, what's he doing with that free time? He says, you're in charge of everything. And the prison guard doesn't even worry about what's happening in prison. And one day, while Joseph is succeeding in that prison cell, two prisoners are brought in, the cupbearer and another guy, the chief baker for uh, Pharaoh, high king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And they come in and, and they say, hey, you know, and then they have dreams while they're in there. And they say, hey, I wish somebody would tell me what these dreams mean. And Joseph says, I, I might be able to tell you. I can't interpret dreams, but God can, and I'll ask him for you. It's pretty much what he says. And so he, he interprets the first dream, and uh, the chief cupbearer is going to go back and take his place with Pharaoh once again. And the baker's like, well, do mine, do mine. I want out of prison, you know. And he says, bad news, man. Uh, you're going to get executed, and it's going to be ugly. He proves right. Joseph, as the cupbearer leaves, you know, before the cupbearer leaves, says, hey, tell Pharaoh about me. Cupbearer leaves, goes back to his high position, forgets all about Joseph, which I might have done too in his defense. I'm free. Joseph who, you know? And Joseph, this is so fascinating. Something, if you've heard the story in Sunday school, you probably don't know. He spends two more years as a prisoner. Two more years as a prisoner. I'm sure at times thinking, my family put me here. And then one day, Pharaoh has a dream. It's a couple of dreams. And everybody in the land's trying to interpret Pharaoh's dream for him, and nobody can figure out what the meaning of this dream. And, uh, and so uh, the cupbearer goes, oh, yeah, I know a guy. You know, I know a guy. <laughs> Forgot. Uh, and so he tells him about Joseph, and, and Joseph is brought before Pharaoh, and it's, it's really fascinating, actually, because before he's brought to Pharaoh, it says that he took the prison clothes off, got cleaned up, and he stands before Pharaoh. And he says, okay, well, I can't interpret dreams, but God can, so I'll ask him, and we'll see what happens. And he interprets these dreams for Pharaoh, and basically, the point of the dreams is the land is going to have a great season of growth agriculturally. It's going to be awesome, and it's going to be followed, uh, the, the plenty is going to be followed by a famine. And so Joseph says, hey, here's what you ought to do. This is what God thinks you should do. You should store a bunch of grain, because otherwise you won't make it through the seven years. And Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph that he says, is there anybody smarter in all the land? Is there anybody more capable of running this new government program where we store grain for this famine that is going to come upon our land? How about we make Joseph second in charge? And so he gives Joseph a garment made of fine linen. And by the way, I should stop to tell you that in Hebrew, the, which the Old Testament is written in, it actually uses different words for the different garments that, that uh, Joseph uses. I think it's meant to be this type of illustration almost. But he gets this fine linen and he's raised to second in command to Pharaoh. That's like second most powerful person in the entire world. 
From prison to fine linen, he, he becomes the second most powerful person in the world. And this crazy thing happens if you don't know the story. It's one of the best stories I recommend reading. It's a long story, perhaps the longest story in the whole Bible, but it's an incredible story. Uh, Joseph's brothers were not too far away. They have their time of plenty, and then famine strikes, and they get hungry. And the dad says, hey, I heard they have food in Egypt. Go to Egypt. Go get food in Egypt. And so they go to Egypt, and they get some food. And now I'm going to cut down the story because it gets really long at this point. But they go to Egypt once. Joseph has kind of this veiled, weird kind of conversation with them, talks to his officials about them and kind of hides his identity from them, but says, you go back, you bring your brother Benjamin and, and you come back and, and I'll give you more food when you come back. So they go and they have to talk the dad into bringing Benjamin because Benjamin's the new favorite since Joseph has been killed. And they come back and Joseph reveals himself and they have this wonderful cry party. Everybody's excited. Everybody's happy. And they move Jacob, Joseph's dad, to Egypt and he eventually dies there. And after he dies, the brothers get together and they go, they go, man, he's going to exact revenge. He's only been nice to us because his dad was alive and he didn't want to hurt his dad and he didn't want to cause problems for his dad. And, and so, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So they go and they talk to Joseph and they try to suck up to him. And Joseph says this incredible thing and it's the very thing. It's the very thing that will determine, I believe, whether or not you succeed like Joseph did despite your family. It's the very thing that, that will determine whether or not you grasped and take a hold of all of the promises that God has made from you despite the things that your family has done. It's this attitude that will determine if you live the rest of your life just broken hearted, a slave or a prisoner to the decisions that your family have made. It's the very attitude that it requires. Here's what Joseph said. You intended to harm me. He does not say to these people, oh, it's okay. You're fine. It wasn't that bad. It, it was no big deal. No skin off my back. What'd you do again? I don't remember when you sold me into slavery. You know, that's like under the bridge. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Let's read it again. It's one of the best verses in the entire Bible. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. One author said this, God did not approve of the treachery of Joseph's brothers. They were fully responsible for their crime. He did not make them do it. He did not need their treachery to accomplish his plan. But some way or other, Joseph was going to get to Egypt and come to the place where God's blessings and deliverance could come through him. And I think that God chose to do that through Joseph because Joseph was a person who said, despite anything that happens... I will serve God and recognize that he will accomplish his plans in me and through me. And here's the thing we ask. I mean, how did Joseph get through it? Uh, and how can I get through it? And I think it's simply this. If you will serve Jesus, 
then the mess that your family has created can be part of the blessing that God wants to give you. Notice, I didn't say that God can bless you despite it. I think that the mess can be part of the bless to be grammatically incorrect, but more memorable. The mess can be part of the bless, and I believe it happens only if you set your mind always and no matter what to serving Jesus. The bless can be part of the mess if you make a decision to serve Jesus. And you say, is this real? And I think it is. I think Joseph, if he hadn't have set his mind to serving God, just to doing what God wanted and recognizing that God will come through, if he had just built himself a pity party, I don't think any of this happens. I don't think he gets to a point where the promises come through God. God would have delivered in a different way. If Joseph and the cistern cursed God and said, God, I hate you for putting me here. If Joseph, while a slave, said, God, I will no longer serve you because look how you have served me. If Joseph, while rotting in a prison, would have said, no way will God get my attention because he has left me here. Then God would have delivered the people. But he wouldn't have done it through Joseph. And Joseph said, I will serve God no matter what. And because of that, the mess became part of the bless. But the problem is, one author said, not only is God's timetable difficult for us to anticipate, God's methods may be difficult for us to recognize. And I know that some of you go, there's no way. If you knew my family, you could not possibly say that's part of the blessing of God. But I, I do believe because of this story and because of what I'm about to tell you, that if you will serve Jesus, no matter what, no matter what your family has done for you, you don't go, well, if my family was an alcoholic, I wouldn't be an alcoholic. You say, I won't be. You say, well, if my family would have, you know, done a better job of serving God and they would have raised me right, then I, I would live for God. If my family would have gone to church every Sunday when I was a kid, then I would go to church more consistently. If you will chuck all those excuses and say, I'm gonna do what God wants, then I believe that the mess can be part of the bless. And I don't just know that because of the story of Joseph. I know that from my life. And I'll just tell you that this has proved true over and over and over and over in my life. But there is one moment uh, that defines how the mess can be part of the bless if you serve Jesus more than any other. And uh, after, at the end of my senior year of high school, I, uh, I was going to Hawaii. I had a, a trip planned with friends. We were going to blow all of our money that we got from graduation in Hawaii. We succeeded at that, but um, we, we were going to Hawaii, and uh, with, I think, 11 other friends went with me, and after Hawaii, there was a mission trip with my youth group, and I had no intent or plan on going there. I uh, had recently, about uh, two months before that mission trip, been broken up with by my first love. And if you've ever been broken up with by your first love, there's very few of you who haven't if you've had a first love. Uh, but it, you know that like, I mean, I'm 17 years old. I, I just want to sleep all day, every day, and think about how my life will never get better. That was pretty much my plan. And so I was thinking, I'll go to Hawaii. I'll get a little sun. You can sleep in Hawaii on a beach. Uh, I'll, I'll try to have fun with friends. But there is no way I'm going on this mission trip because she's going to be there. And, and I just want no part of that business. I, I don't want to be with her in a bus for a week. And so I have every, by the grace of God, every youth ministry person that knows me well in that youth 
group was like, Chad, we want you to, we want you to come to Southeast San Diego. That's where they were going with this. I'm like, eh, sorry, I, uh, I'm going to Hawaii. They're overlapping, can't make it. Chad, we want you to go. We want you to be a part of this mission trip. I'm sorry, I don't have the money. Chad, we want you to go. Well, I would, but it's baseball season. I can't be at any of the meetings. Uh, Chad, we really want you to go. Like, I, I'm sorry. So I'm, I am skipping every meeting. I'm not saving any money for this. I have no plan. We're supposed to memorize verses and be part of trainings and I, not happening, not going on this mission trip. So finally, this guy named John, bless his heart, just comes up to me and says, look, I know you're going to Hawaii. If you come on the mission trip, I will drive to the airport and I will pick you up at the airport. Why? You know, like, why are you doing this? And so I say, yeah, sure, I'll go. Uh, Side note, uh, greatest plane flight I've ever had was from Hawaii to San Diego. I had five seats in the middle to go to sleep on. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, Every time I get on a plane now, I think I wish it was that situation, but it's never been again. Uh, But I fly to San Diego, and we're doing ministry in southeast San Diego, which if, if you're not familiar with the southeast part of San Diego... It is really an extension of, of kind of the, the Mexican border cities. Uh, it is people who have, have come across the border and they've just stayed right there. And it's poverty stricken. It's, it's a different world. There's violence. There's crime. Uh, in fact, at the church we were primarily doing our ministry out of in Southeast San Diego, we were not allowed to go outside the building unless we were going to the bus. That weren't allowed to go outside because it was a scary area. And so... So now they got me there, and they're like, Chad, we would like you to be one of the people who tells your testimony uh, and to this group of Mexican inner city kids that you have nothing in common with. So that's what we want you to do, make it impactful. And so I get up, I tell my story, um, a story that's primarily driven by family, because if we're being honest, isn't much of our testimony, what's happened in our family. Uh, and, and so I, I, I share this testimony and Jesus has helped me. You know, that's pretty like my family has had its struggles, uh, especially uh, certain parts of my family, but God has brought me through them uh, and he can do that for you. So the next day, uh, this little boy named Mikey comes up to me and uh, Mikey says to me, hey, our families are the same. I'm like, no kid, they're not the same. And he's like, no, I'm telling you they're the same. Take a walk with me. And I'm like, I can't take a walk with you. I can't go outside. <laughs> you know, like I am, I'm locked in here. There's bars on your on this church's windows. I mean, I can't go outside. So um, he's like, no, no, I need you to take a walk with me. And, uh, and I'm like, I'll ask. I'm 17. Keep that in mind. I'm not an adult in this situation. I say, I'll ask. No way they're saying yes. I don't even remember the conversation. I, I don't think they actually liked me. They're like, yeah, you can go. Like, what, as, a, as an adult who's led youth ministry now, it's like, what were they thinking? So I, I take this walk with this eight, nine-year-old kid, and we walk around the block, and it's incredible. Me and Mikey are just sharing stories about our families, what we've been through. And I lead him to Jesus, say, hey, Mikey, look, the only way that you're going to overcome these many shirts that you've already worn is if you accept Jesus as your Savior. He says, yeah, and I lead his brother, Marky, uh, to Jesus. And I remember getting on that bus that night as we drive off uh, to Point Loma University, an entirely different environment. And they're trying to 
to crawl onto the bus and they're cheering and they're excited and they're pumped. And, and it literally, literally to this day is one of probably the top four or five greatest moments of my life. And that moment doesn't take place if there wasn't some type of mess in my family's history. I am telling you, not just because of Joseph, but because of Chad, uh, that if you will serve Jesus, then the mess can be part of the bless. But if you don't serve Jesus, then your family's always just going to be a mess. And it's going to cause you to be a mess. The only way to overcome it is to be smart like Mikey and accept Jesus as your personal savior and say, no matter if I feel like a prisoner or a slave or somebody who has been beat up and kicked to the curb by my family, I will absolutely do what God wants me to do. And if you will, if you will, I promise, I promise that the mess will become part of the bless. I, I don't just say it lightly. I'm telling you the honest truth. The mess will become part of the bless. And, and so when you leave here today, this, this is what I want from you. We've, we've been talking, my dad talked about this card and uh, and the, the response cards. Man, some of you, I know for a fact that you've come here today and your family is a negative impact on your life and it's a negative impact because you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus no matter what. For some of you, that means you need to become a Christian. And for others of you, it means that you need to live like a Christian in more areas of your life. And so don't let this day pass and go, wow, that was inspiring, that was nice. But respond to what God has said this morning. And if you do, please tell me about it on one of those cards and drop it in, but respond nonetheless. Let me pray for you. Lord, so many people are ruined by their families, and Joseph, God, could have been ruined by his family, but he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't, and I believe he wasn't because he made a decision to follow you. Jesus, you've given us the opportunity, the way by your death and resurrection to come into a relationship with you. And for me, I know, God, a relationship that has allowed me to wear every one of these t-shirts but still come out, God, okay. And Lord, I pray, God, for every person who's come here this morning, like Mikey and Marky, whose families are hurting them, who have hurt them, who have been a negative uh, source of just a negative source in their lives. I pray, Lord, that, that they would make a decision to serve you, Jesus, with all their might and all their heart in every area of their lives, never letting their families be uh, an excuse, God, but doing what you want despite their families sometimes so that the blessed can be part, uh, the mess can be part of the blessed, Lord. I, I just, it served me so well, Lord. This story served me so well. From the time I learned it as a kid, I've connected. From the time that my uncle taught it to his youth group, I've connected with it. God, and I pray this morning it would connect with others and that you would impact lives through Joseph and his story once again, Lord. Lead people to you, God. Lead people to stop making mistakes and, and to a place where they live for you, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen.